We have multiple seven-figure seller Kevin Reiser on the broadcast today, who will give us his story on how he became successful on Amazon, the need for 3PL warehouses, and a big trademark battle he's involved in now, and how you can avoid this happening to you. This and more on today's episode of the Serious Sellers Podcast. Alright guys, how's it going? This is Bradley Sutton and you are tuned in to the Serious Sellers Podcast and today I am really stoked to have my good friend Kevin Reiser here on the broadcast with me and Kevin Reiser, for those of you who don't know, he's the founder of the Private Label Movement and also he's a multiple seven-figure seller. He is going to be giving us a lot of amazing and really cool stories today and great tips for you guys. Kevin, how is it going today? It's going great, Bradley. Thanks so much for having me on. Awesome. Awesome. Where are you located, Kevin, by the way? I am just outside of uh, Dallas, Texas. Okay. How far away is that from Austin? Uh, a little bit too far. Further than I would like, I should say. It's, a, it's about three and a half hours if you don't hit traffic. Okay. Yeah. I might be going there a lot you know, soon because actually one of the Helium Thames offices is moving to the Austin area and actually Manny and Guy over here moving over there. So I'm sure I'll be going to that office a, a lot. So we'll have to stop by over there. I'll, I'll make the three hour drive as long as you, you give me some, some alcohol at yeah, well, your well, favorite no, bar. No problem there. <laughs> Even better. I'll take the party bus down and join you in Austin for the weekend. It's, it's one of my favorite cities. So I try to get down there a couple times a year. Awesome. Awesome. They'll be my first, the first time I go there will be my first time overall because I've never been there. So hope you'll be my tour guide, both in Dallas and or Austin. I would be happy to, my friend. Austin's a great city. All the, all the cool people seem to be moving to Dallas. I mean, to Austin, rather. So all <laughs> I'm right, stuck yeah. up here in Dallas, which is, is not too bad. But Austin's I guess I'm not cool enough yet to move there. But <laughs> I, I can't ever picture myself moving out of California. I mean, I've lived in New York for a time and in, in Japan when I was younger, but I'm a California boy at heart. So there you go. There yeah. you go. All right. So let's get enough chit chat here. Let's get this is the Serious Sellers podcast. So we got, we got to talk some Amazon stuff here now. You... As I mentioned, multiple seven-figure seller, but how did it all begin for you? When did you start selling on Amazon? How did you originally get into it? Yeah, so it's kind of funny, Bradley. It's been almost five years now. In fact, this April will be five years uh, since I began this journey. And it all started with an email. You know, like probably so many people that are, that are listening to us right now, um, I had a, a different career. I was actually a consultant in the healthcare space and was working 80 hours a week and was just miserable at my job. Um, our biggest client was 12 weeks behind on their invoices. So I was struggling to pay the bills and figure out how we were going to keep the lights on and, and pay our people. And I always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So probably like a lot of us, I had signed up for a lot of these email lists and I would every day get probably a dozen or more emails about different money-making opportunities and different entrepreneurial endeavors. And to be honest, most of them would just go straight in the trash. But one day in April of 2014, I got an email that, that changed my life. And it was about this. It was about Amazon. It was about people that were becoming uh, wealthy and, and replacing their nine to five incomes, selling on Amazon. And I, I still, you know, think today sometimes, gosh, where would I be and how different would my life be if I had never gotten that email or, or never opened it? And it, it sure changed uh, the trajectory. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So then what, how did you start? I mean, did you start right away or what did that email motivate you to do or what was the next step? 
So a, a funny story. Um, I didn't start right away, although I, I did start fairly quickly, or I should say I didn't start with private labeling right away. The email was actually a pitch for um, a, an educational program called ASM or Amazing Selling Machine. A lot of your audience will be familiar with that. Uh, and it was a pitch, if you will, to join the training program through a guy who's now a good friend of mine, Ryan Daniel Moran. And um, I was fascinated by it. Just the, the idea that people could make money selling products on Amazon was really fascinating to me, probably partially because I was a big fan of Amazon. I was one of the early adopters for Amazon Prime. And I, I ordered at that time, probably, you know, several times a week from Amazon. Now it seems like sometimes it's several times a day, but it just, it made sense to me that you could sell products online through Amazon and, and kind of have them do the heavy lifting. Um, so I went through the, the early steps of that training um, program, but as you know, those courses, they drip out over a period of a couple of weeks. It's not like you can click a link and go buy the training right then. So what I did instead is I went out and I read everything I could online. I bought a couple books about selling on Amazon. And I actually got my start doing not private label, but retail arbitrage. And I lasted three days <laughs> with retail arbitrage. <laughs> I went out, I'll never forget, I, I got the first book, I read it cover to cover in one day. I went out the next day and spent about $300 at Costco and Sam's Club and Target, I think, and, and a couple of other stores and just bought up all this product. And I spent the next three days Restickering that inventory and then sending it into Amazon. And I remember thinking, God, that was probably the hardest three or four hundred dollars I've made. And I've done a lot of crappy jobs. So I didn't make it very long. I didn't last very long with retail arbitrage. Of course, uh, once I figured out that private labeling was out there, that really resonated with me. And I, I dove in with, uh, with both feet. And how did you do on your first? Did you start off with one product or what was your initial journey like? Yeah, one product, um, only about, I'd say, 500 units, a little shy of 500 units with one product. So started going through the training in, in April and, and set up the company that summer and uh, found a supplier and you know, badgered them until they would actually return my calls and, and uh, agree to sell the product to us and, and really did all of the research and everything. And product actually launched that August. So just a few months later. And I still remember the day that we got our first sale and, and being so excited and thinking, all right, this is awesome. You know, we made $5 in profit for, for that first product. And then I remember just a few weeks later, um, the first time that I sold uh, five products in one day. And, I, and that's when the, re the wheels really started to turn in my head. I thought, okay, $5 times five products sold. I need 25 bucks today. And I really didn't have to do anything. And of course, I knew that that $25 wasn't going to change my life. Uh, that $25 wasn't going to make the rent payment or... Um, so, so at this point, were you still doing that crazy 80 hour a week job or... I was. Yeah. So, so I didn't uh, quit that right, right away. I wanted to see if this thing had legs and, and kind of make sure it would work out. I needed to in order to keep paying my bills. Uh, in fact, I was so tight with cash when I started that I put the training program on a credit card and did the three payments. You know, I didn't pay for it all at once. And I went to Vegas that summer for the live event for ASM, but I was tight on cash. So I didn't stay at the event that, or at the hotel. I thought you were about to say, I went to Vegas and, and won some <laughs> stuff at the blackjack table. And that's how I funded my inventory, but okay, you I went to Vegas for the ASM. Friend. 
I wish. Uh, no. So I went to Vegas and I stayed at Harrah's next door to the event because it was like $60 a night instead of $250 a night at the Venetian, which is where the, the conference was. So I was trying to save money any place I could. So yeah, still doing the consulting. Um, and it was probably about three to six months in that I realized, hey, this thing is on the trajectory to replace my full-time income pretty quickly here. And I really need to focus on it. I can't keep doing my nine to five job and the Amazon thing. I've got to pick one or the other. And so I started the process to shut down the consulting company and, and just focus on private labeling. Wow. That's interesting. So like after your first year, like in your first year, your first calendar year, I would say how many, how many products did you launch? So we launched, um, I'd say six or eight products that first calendar year and did just over a million dollars in gross sales. Wow. That is incredible. That's incredible. And what would you say is the biggest thing that was different about selling on Amazon in those days, as opposed to now here in 2019? Yeah, that's a great question, Bradley. Um, you know, without a doubt, so much has changed, right? But I would say, I think a lot of people would answer that question and would say that the biggest thing that's changed is competition. And I don't think they're wrong. Certainly competition today is much more fierce and, and stiff than it was five or six or eight years ago. Um, however, I think there's still a lot of great opportunities out there. I think the biggest thing that's changed is that it's not quite as easy, right? So back in those days, if you picked a decent product and you had a decent listing and you put forward, uh, put forth a decent amount of effort, you could, you could reap really good success, right? You didn't have to be an A, a player, right? You didn't have to be on top of your game. You could just kind of stumble along in the process and do a few things right and make some mistakes and recover from those mistakes and, and still have really good success. And I think today those days are over. I think you've got to know what you're doing. I think you've got to have your processes down. I think you've got to have a great product. Some of the changes that we've seen on Amazon over the last year to two years, uh, Amazon's really you know, forcing us to have great products from the get-go. And so the biggest thing that's changed, in, in my view, is, is the process. It's not quite as simple. It's not quite as easy. Yeah, I, I agree. I wasn't around in those days, but I've talked to some who were, and, and they've said something similar. Now, now you, you had really great success right off the bat, you know, selling on Amazon your first couple of years. At what point did you uh, start the Private Label Movement podcast and what inspired you to do that? Yeah, so it was, um, it was I'd say about uh, two years in, a year and a half to two years in is when I started what at the time was called Private Label Podcast. And really, the, the reason I started it was uh, very simple. I enjoyed hearing the stories of other people that were finding success. And I think for a lot of us, when we first start anything new and, and becoming an entrepreneur, starting an e-commerce company or, or brand is no different. There's a lot of self-doubt, right? I mean, I didn't come to this from an internet marketing background or... I wasn't around when, when affiliate marketing was really big or anything like that. Uh, this was all kind of um, far out for me. I mean, it was, it was way out in left field. So there was a lot of self-doubt. No matter how positive I tried to be in those early days, I, I wondered, you know, can I really make this happen, right? I see all these other people and I hear these other stories, but maybe they're lucky 
or maybe they have some skill set that I don't have. You know, what if I fail at this? And one of the things that was really helpful to me early on, Bradley, was, was to hear the, the stories of other people who had kind of gone before me and, and blazed that trail. Uh, the mistakes they made, the, the early successes they had, uh, the nuts and bolts of, of how they put it all together. Those are really inspiring to me and, and kind of helped to, to push me through that period of doubt. So I simply thought to myself, you know, if this was helpful to me, perhaps it would be helpful to other people. And by that time, I had um, become friendly with a number of other sellers and, and people in the space. And so I was regularly having these conversations with them and kind of picking their brain. And it was real simple. I thought I, I should just start recording these conversations with their permission, of course, and start putting them out there and, and see if they resonate with people. And I never could have imagined um, what it would have become. I, I, I didn't know if anyone, list, anyone would listen. Well, I, I should say, I, I was pretty sure my mom would listen, but I, I didn't know <laughs> if anyone past that would listen. And, and they did. And it, it kind of slowly grew. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. And then you started getting invited, you know, to speak on other, you know, conferences and podcasts. And actually, you know, quick side note here. I've told my story, you know, to some of you guys on the AMAs that I do on Helium 10 about how I originally got into it. You know, years ago, I was part owner of a company who was selling on Amazon, but they really didn't let me know anything about Amazon. All I did was I was the logistics guy and I was the one shipping stuff out. We had a machine and I would be shipping and packaging four or 500 phone cases per day with this machine. And I would replenish inventory to FBA, but kind of everything else they kept kind of secret. I don't know. Not, not that I think back about it. I'm not sure why, why they did that, but Hey, <laughs> I didn't know much about Amazon. And when I split with the company, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I was kind of on my own and I happened to be listening to another podcast. It wasn't the private label podcast, but another one. And you were the guest on there and you were talking about, Hey, next week here in Chicago, we're going to do this thing called Zon Squad Live. It's a great conference for Amazon sellers. I had never been to a conference before just on a whim. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do this. You know, Kevin actually gave a, a, a discount on it. If, if I signed up there, I'm like, let's do this. I went there and it kind of changed my life. I, I, I could say kind of like that email changed your life. It just opened my eyes to the possibilities because I, I had no idea how to do Amazon at all. And when I saw you at that conference and heard your story and heard all the great speakers you had there, it just like made me for the next year, dedicate myself to educating myself on Amazon and then you know, two years, three years later, now I helped, you know, sellers launch over 400 products and worked on 400 listings. And now I'm working at my dream job here at Helium 10. And now here I'm, I'm doing my own podcast. And so <laughs> kind of, I have you to thank for that. So thank you very much for Kevin, for that role that you played in my Amazon journey. Well, thank you, Bradley. That means a lot. And, you know, yeah, it, it, it all kind of comes full circle, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's neat the way that, everything works. And, 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 you know, that's business. And to a certain extent, you know, not to get too frou-frou here, but that's life, you know, yeah. I mean, so much of life is uh, what happens to us, right? That's a small part, but I think a bigger part is, is, you know, how we take advantage of the opportunities that are presented and you never know um, who might be sitting right next to you or who might be uh, across the aisle on the plane or, or whatever. So, uh, you know, I, I've learned through the years to just try and remain open-minded because um, there's there's cool stuff out there and, and there's a lot of good people and great opportunities if you're open to them. Yeah. Now, going back to your, your old podcast, you know, I'm sure you've interviewed hundreds of different sellers. Can you, you, you had no idea I was going to ask this, but can you give me 
maybe some of the most memorable interviews you had or, you know, who, who it was or some of the craziest things that ever happened. Cause you know, now I'm just getting new to this whole podcasting. <laughs> I want to know kind of like what's in store, what I need to watch out for, but, but what's some of the craziest memories you have from, from running the podcast? Oh, that's fun. Um, what a, what a good question. Yeah. I mean, gosh, there were so many memorable opportunities, you know, when, and people ask me that all the time, what was your favorite interview or what was the most interesting and that's a hard question to answer so I'll, I'll give you a couple just the highlights because there's the ones that I think people expect which granted were, were very cool I remember the first time I interviewed a guy named James Thompson um, who's the founder of Prosper Show and, and he's he's made the rounds he's on all the circuits now as, as far as speaking and, and most people know who James is but when we interviewed him the first time uh, to our knowledge and this is still I believe the case um, he was the first former Amazon executive to ever speak publicly um, in an inter, in an in-depth interview type of format you know today you can find former Amazonians, they like to call themselves interviewed all over the place, but, but that was somewhat groundbreaking. And, and James really kind of pulled back the curtain on the inner workings of, of Amazon and was very gracious to um, allow us to do that. Uh, a few months later, um, someone that you probably saw speak at, at that first Sun Squad live event, um, a guy named John Rossman uh, was oh, yes. on the show. And John's kind of like the Steve Wozniak of Amazon. A lot of people don't know him by name, uh, but but what's cool about John is he was the guy that was handpicked by Jeff Bezos to come into Amazon and actually create the third-party marketplace that we all sell on today. And I'll never forget when um, my producer at the time, a guy named Paul Miller, introduced me to John at a at a trade show. Um, we kind of exchanged contact information and and got to know each other a little bit. And then we booked him on the show. And I was so nervous. I did a, a kind of a discovery call with John a, about a week before we were to record the podcast. And I was just so nervous. I was, you know, sweating and pacing. And I wasn't even recording with him that day. I was just going to talk with him for 10 or 15 minutes. So I called him and I said, hey, I know you're probably short on time. So I'll keep this really brief. I you know, just have a few questions and then, you know, we'll prepare for next week's show. And he was like, well, that's great, Kevin. Um, but it actually, you know, I've, I've got plenty of time. And, and if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love after you're done, if, if I could ask you some questions. I'm really fascinated about this whole experience of selling on Amazon. And that was the beginning of a, a friendship that developed with, uh, with John. And, and we've spent quite a lot of time together over the last few years. And he's just such a down-to-earth guy. And that was a really cool experience. <laughs> so there's there's those types of experiences that people are like, oh, you interviewed so-and-so or, oh, you, you got to speak at this place. And, and they would be somewhat expected as kind of the highlights of, of that part of my career. But honestly, Bradley, just as interesting to me were the unsung heroes, if you will, the people that we kind of discovered, you know, grandmothers and line cooks and high school dropouts and people that were thrown out of business school because their ideas were too radical that kind of pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and uh, found success creating brands and, and selling products online. I loved to tell those stories. I loved to meet those people uh, and, and to kind of unearth um, those stories and, and introduce them to the world. So those to me were, were some of the most impactful. Awesome. That's great to know. Thank you for that. Now you seem to have dabbled in, in a lot of things. You know, we talked about the you know podcast. You know, Amazon selling. 
and you had at one time started your own like 3PL warehouse. Now, this is actually something I feel strongly about that uh, I'm actually going to dedicate a future podcast to this because I don't think many Amazon sellers think that there is a need for a 3PL warehouse. <laughs> they, they, they order stuff from China. They, they ship it directly to Amazon FBA. Sure. But, but me, I actually myself dabbled a little bit in handling you know 3PL. And in my opinion, it's something that's important that sellers know is an option. Now, before we get into your experience with that, do you agree with me or can you explain to the listeners your viewpoint on why you think 3PL warehouse is something that Amazon sellers should consider? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, definitely. I mean, I think that they are vitally important. Um, You know, when Amazon first launched their FBA program, in a sense, they were a 3PL, right? Which for for those of you that that aren't familiar with kind of the lingo, because I certainly wasn't, uh, 3PL is just third-party logistics. And so Amazon still today acts as a 3PL when they fulfill orders that you sell on their website. They will handle the storage and then the, the picking and packing and shipping of those items. And there's, you know, hundreds of other companies out there that, that do the same thing. And yes, I, I do still believe that it's necessary for most e-commerce companies to have a 3PL partner other than Amazon. It can be for a variety of reasons. Um, a few, just to give you a little taste, for example... Uh, Walmart is one of the fastest growing e-commerce sites uh, here in the U.S. They are seeing triple digit growth year over year the past few years. And Walmart has a policy and has for over two years now that you cannot use Amazon to fulfill orders for their customers. Now, they don't really have a great way of enforcing it. So there's still a lot of Amazon sellers that uh, also selling Walmart and use FDA to fulfill those orders. But if you were to get caught, Walmart could potentially you know, suspend your ability to, to sell on their platform. And that's simply because they don't want um, Walmart customers to receive their walmart.com orders in Amazon packaging, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, the reason I actually started looking at, at other 3PL options was much more simple than that. It was that I sold some products that were deemed hazardous by Amazon and they made it clear to me in no uncertain terms that I was not to send in those products to Amazon any longer. Uh, so I had a choice. I had to either uh, stop selling those products or find another option. Interesting. Interesting. So now, you know, briefly, what was your experience? So we've been talking about all your positive experiences, but this can be probably categorized under one of the negative ones, right? It can. I mean, it's, all, it's not all negative because I, I truly believe that you know, every experience, if you look at it through uh, the right prism, can can be positive in Absolutely. some way. So I certainly learned a lot through the process, um, both as a business owner um, uh, and also just personally uh, in terms of strengths and weaknesses. But uh, yeah, it was it was a bit of a mess, I'll be honest. And I, I think this is something too, Bradley, that, that as entrepreneurs, we don't talk enough about our failures. And so what I want everyone to know is, you know, um, sometimes it's easy to get fixed up and and kind of fixated on people's successes. And certainly I've been really fortunate to have my share of success and 
Uh, oftentimes that's what people want to talk to me about and that's fine. It's, it's fun to talk about numbers and success and, and all of the cool stuff that's happened over the past five years. But I promise you, I've got just as many failures and, um, I've learned to, to not hide them or run from them, but instead to kind of embrace them, not just personally, but, you know, publicly, which is a little bit harder, but I think is so important because, um, you know, if you're, if you're in the game long enough, you're a business owner long enough, you're going to have uh, failure at some point and to know that you're not alone and that other people have, have, have been there before, I think is important. So for me, I mean, the, the short, the short story, the short version is I needed to find a 3PL partner to fulfill our hazardous um, merchandise. So I hired a company here in Dallas uh, to do so. And about three months in, it was just an absolute nightmare. Um, about half of our packages were getting lost in transit. And, and that's probably only partly the, the fault of the fulfillment center that we hired. It's partially the fault of the post office. And there was a lot of moving parts. But I pulled the plug three months in and said, hey, we can't keep going this route. And I made the, the, the classic entrepreneur's mistake, right? Is which is just to say, you know, F it, I can do it better myself. <laughs> and probably some of you listening have made that mistake at some point in your journey, which is just to say, you know what, I, I can do this better than anyone else. And so I will. And so I did. I went out and I leased um, a warehouse space and I started hiring people and I started ordering equipment. And my, my vision at the time was to create kind of the best 3PL out there that made use of technology and that made use of a lot of the things that Amazon has done to cut cost and to improve efficiency. Um, and to be fair, a lot of, a lot of um, the things that we wanted to do uh, three and a half, four years ago when we started that, that company are now being done by other 3PLs. So I, I think that my view and my vision for what I wanted to create was, was probably not a bad idea. I think it was actually probably um, a really good idea. But the mistake for me was underestimating the complexity of that business. Um, you know, all of the moving parts and all of the potential pitfalls and all of the massive amounts of expense of um, the type of equipment and software and, and things that you have to do to, to be successful. So, you know, we ended up shutting the doors uh, last year and uh, it was painful. It was really painful for me to not only admit that failure, but to see um, the repercussions of that failure and having to lay people off and having to, um, you know, tell people that they had to go find another job and, and having to tell our clients, uh, some of whom, many of whom were, were personal friends of mine, um, that they were going to have to find a new uh, vendor to serve their business. It was a it was a difficult experience, but one that I think ultimately uh, I learned a ton from, and it, it made me stronger. Yeah, it's just that, that cliche thing, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But sure. I think it's Gary V who always says, "Hey, you know, sometimes losing is what helps you, you know, to realize what you have to do to win." So it's not always a bad thing or a negative thing, like you had said. Well, you know, when you have failure, you learn from it. No doubt. No doubt. Now, something else that's been going on recently, uh, I saw this originally, I forgot, somebody actually shared it with me. 
something to do with a certain award show, your dog, and some Amazon products. So what in the world <laughs> do those three things have to do with each other? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, wow, that's, that's like a, a bad bar joke, the beginning of a bad bar joke. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. Um, you know, I, um, I named my, my company, my first private label company after my dog, whose name is Emmy. And there's another famous Emmy out there, um, that, that is, um, the name of an, of an award show. And so the, the short and skinny of that is that we are currently in some, uh, some back and forth, some, some legal, uh, disagreement, I guess is the best way of, of, of saying it with this massive organization that has, uh, deep pockets and has a huge following both in and out of, of the entertainment world and in, in and around Hollywood. And the, the funny thing is I never could have imagined this happening. Um, I think one thing I would say to, to your audience is go for your trademark early. Um, that was probably one of the big mistakes we, we didn't make, um, or we made rather was not filing for a trademark, you know, four or five years ago when we were getting started. Instead, I waited until, um, just over a year ago. It was probably, uh, October or November of, of 2017, we filed for a trademark, which is one of the things that our attorney said, okay, you guys are getting big enough. You really need to file for a trademark. So we did. And it was provisionally approved, which is what happens. The, the trademark board uh, takes a look at your filing. And if they think there's any uh, potential for confusion with an existing mark, then they'll uh, reject it. Um, if they don't feel that way, they'll provisionally approve it. And that happened in February of last year, 2018. Uh, but then what they do is they publish it uh, for opposition, which gives anyone else 30 days to oppose that mark and say, hey, we feel like this mark infringes on our rights uh, and they can oppose it. And that's what happened is, is NATUS, the National Academy of Television, Arts and Sciences, opposed our mark. I remember when I, I first heard about this, I thought, gosh, this has got to be a joke. Like, they're literally coming after this small pet products company named after someone's dog. And they think that that's going to cause confusion amongst consumers between, you know, the Emmy awards. I thought there is no way that that's, that's, uh, that can be legit. This has to be some type of misunderstanding or a mistake. Uh, and as it turns out, it wasn't, they were very serious and they've been very aggressive at coming after us over the past year. And, um, you know, we're still kind of, in that back and forth period of uh, them at first trying to get us to change our name and, and they've suggested or demanded all kinds of different things. Uh, we made the, the difficult decision a month or two ago of, of kind of going public with our story. And there's been a, a number of different media articles written and, and uh, features on television and online, uh, different trade blogs and things about the, the fight. And I'm really optimistic. I'm really hopeful that we can come to some resolution soon and and uh, coexist because certainly uh, we have no intention on infringing upon or causing confusion between the two brands. I, I think they're separate enough that we can coexist peacefully. Wow. So what would you say is the biggest takeaway from this experience then that you could tell other sellers? <sighs> yeah, I, I think um, do your due diligence early. You know, and this this is not just with trademark law and or or trademark issues or intellectual property even, but you know whether it's taxes or you know keeping proper books or 
um, any number of things. I think for so many of us, when we're first starting, we tend to ignore the details on a lot of those, those uh, more complex issues. And I understand that. And to, to a certain extent, it makes sense to just focus on the things that are the most important, the things that are going to produce revenue, the things that are going to help you rank and all of the kind of nuts and bolts that we all get excited about. But the moral of the story is that these problems, if you uh, ignore them, if you allow them to crop up years down the line, are so much harder to solve and so much more expensive to solve than if you deal with them properly in the beginning. Right. Yeah. And so um, whether it's keeping your book separate from your personal checking account or structuring your company in the way that your accountant tells you is going to give you the most protection with regards to taxes or if it's, uh, you know, signing up for product liability insurance before someone sues you claiming that their product, your product did them harm. Yeah. All of these things are so much more difficult and so much more expensive uh, the longer you wait. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's great to know. Now, something else that would be great to know is that I get a lot of questions from, I'm assuming, you know, some of your products you've probably had for a while, like over a year. Would that be sure. correct? So yeah. what about, you know, a lot of the focus these days is on launching new products and what to do to get to page one and this and that. But I don't think enough is talked about you know, maintaining mature products and even scaling more or trying to keep those sales high. So what is just one tip that you have found that works for you in keeping your mature products relevant to buyers that you could share with our audience? That's a great question. Um, and I think you're right, by the way. I think that um, most of the focus is on new product launches and to, to some extent, that's wise. Um, at the end of the day, what we all have to understand is that every product has a life cycle, every single one of them. And that's not unique to selling on Amazon. That's not unique to our products as, as private label products. That's true of any product out there in the marketplace. Right? Every single one has a product life cycle. Now, you might say, well, you know, Tide laundry detergent has been around for 150 years. You know, and I would say, yes, it has, but even that product has a life cycle. It may be that that product life cycle is 150 years, but it's still there. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and in reality, what I would say is that they don't sell the exact same product, right? They've introduced pods mm -hmm. and they have new fragrances and new scents and new packaging and all different ways that they're trying to reinvent themselves and distinguish themselves from their competition. And so our products too have life cycles. And if you, if you had to make me guess, I'd say that the average product that sold on Amazon, that's a private label product, that life cycle is somewhere between one and five years. Okay. Um, and so we've seen with our products that they, they have a growth stage and then they hit a plateau and then they start to decline or die, as I like to say, they, they die. And sometimes that death is quick and relatively painless. And sometimes mm -hmm. that death is really drawn out and very painful. Uh, and so I think the first step is to always be aware of where your product is in that product life cycle. And you can do things to prolong that or to kind of breathe new life into a product. And that could be a packaging change. That could be a rebranding. That could be a change in formula. Um, that could be additions to that product or uh, adding additional items in that same line. 
but being aware of where that that product is along that trajectory is so important. You can't just rest on your laurels and think, okay, product A made you know three hundred thousand dollars in sales last year. I think you're doing yourself a disservice to just assume that it's always going to be that way because it won't. Yeah, that's excellent, excellent advice. One more thing that I think is is kind of relevant nowadays and that is on a lot of sellers' minds. And I especially wanted to ask you this since you've been selling on Amazon for a while. There's a lot of newer sellers who kind of what I like to call have been spoiled with this exact phrase search volume that's been available for the last 15 months that now is no mm. longer available. And and to them now now that tools are not going to have that that information or or that live information from Amazon you know, to them, the sky is falling, but you know, they don't realize that people have been selling on Amazon without this for 10, 15 years. So you being one of them who has been selling on Amazon, what did you do? Like, how did you prioritize your keywords more than 15 months ago when there was no such thing as the visibility of exact phrase search volume from Amazon? Yeah, it's a great question. I think so many times today we, we can get spoiled by all of the information, all of the tools that are out there. And, and don't get me wrong. I love data and I love the tools. You know, Helium 10 has got a lot of, you know, a lot of incredible tools and, and they're sweet. And you know, there's, there's lots of cool stuff out there, but to, to a certain extent, um, you know, those are good. But the flip side of that is I think sometimes they can make us lazy. Right. Yeah, and what absolutely. I mean by that Bradley is, is that, you know, um, there's so much more than just the data or just, you know, for instance, you mentioned exact volume search terms. Okay. So if, if that's all it takes is kind of mastering that piece of the pie, then congratulations. You can probably get your product to page one, uh, pretty quickly and pretty painlessly, but what's going to keep it there? I mean, if it's a crap product, you know, where the wheels fall off as soon as someone starts using it, I promise you, you're not going to stay on page one, no matter what tools you have, no matter what data you have. If your customer service experience is poor, I promise you, you're not going to stay on page one. So in some ways it can make us lazy because it allows us to focus only on, you know, the algorithm or only on, you know, one piece of data and I think what's, what's, what was helpful five years ago is still true today. And that's to take a wider view of things in terms of, um, you know, what we're doing. And it really starts with picking a good product. Um, I remember I used to hear people say that on the podcast and sometimes I would roll my eyes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll be honest. I would think, oh gosh, one more person says it starts with picking a great product. I'm going to, you know, um, scream. And, but, but, you know, time has proven that out, that it's so true. Can you launch a product and have some quick success and make a few bucks if it's not a good product? Yes, absolutely you can, right? You can, you, lightning can strike. You can get lucky. You can do some things and, and get there. Um, but that's a very short-sighted approach to, to what we're doing here. The, the people I know that are the most successful are the people that are playing the long game. Yes, they make use of data. Yes, they you know, stay up or, or they have people on their team that stay up to date on the most recent trends and the hacks and the, and the different data that's out there. I think that's critically important. This today is so much more of a data-driven game than it was five years ago. You've got to be on top of that stuff. But if that's the only thing you're looking at, 
you know, I don't know that, that you're really playing the long game, that you're really setting yourself up for success. And that's where I want to be. So I, I think you have to kind of do both. I completely agree. And so, you know, if those of you sellers out there who are, who are stressing about this, you know, Kevin became a seven figure seller before there was a such thing as exact phrase search volume. So <laughs> it can Bradley, be done guys. It can be done. There are so many things, right? I mean, you, you mentioned the sky is falling, right? And yeah. I think back over the last four and a half, five years and gosh, I can list out at least a dozen or two dozen different things that happened, right? Which at the time were like cataclysmic. I mean, they were, they were <laughs> yep. doomsday scenarios. When you talk about you know, incentivized reviews, incentivized reviews getting banned. When you talk about, um, you know, super URL changes. Mm -hmm. You talk about different algorithm changes. When you talk about um, changes to the terms as to when you could message customers. When you talk about, um, I remember when Amazon first took away uh, cell phone numbers for customers. So a lot of people were creating custom uh, yes. audiences mm -hmm. based on cell phone numbers. Or they, were, or they were calling customers. When I first started, one of the things they trained us to do was to actually call customers and check in on them a few weeks after they made a purchase. You know, hey, thanks for buying my blue widget. What do you think of it? Did it arrive? Is it, is it okay? Do you love it? Do you hate it? You know, hey, would you leave a review? Could I get your email address? I'd like to send you a coupon. You know, those days are long gone. So there's been so many things over the past couple of years that, at the time, the people have said, gosh, the sky is falling. And guess what? The sun rises again tomorrow. Yep. You know? And th the game is changing, but the game has always changed. And the game will always continue to change. That's the nature of business, right? That's the nature of business. You're never standing completely still. You're always moving forward or moving backwards. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, I really appreciate you coming on here, especially, you know, you came on here and are dedicating your time and, and giving us this value and, and you're not even trying to pitch anything. You don't have a course or you don't have, you know, podcasts or anything that you're trying to pitch. So I really appreciate it. But that being said, if people do want to follow your story or be able to, you know, see what's going to happen with this, this Emmy situation, how are they able to, to follow you? Yeah. Hit me up on Facebook. Um, I've, I've got a, a public page there and I've also got a profile. Um, shoot me a message or follow me on, on Facebook. I'd love to connect. And I, I, you're right. I don't have anything to sell or anything to push. Other than this, be kind to each other. There is so much uh, nastiness out there and not just in our space. I just mean in the world in general. Um, it's a small world. And, and those of us that are Amazon sellers and, and private label e-commerce people, we got to stick together. There's a lot more good people out there than bad. So be nice to each other and, and treat each other with respect. And if you do that, I'll, I'll be a happy person. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you again, Kevin. And don't forget that as soon as I get over there to the Dallas or Austin area, you owe me a couple drinks. All right. I certainly do, my friend. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Bradley. Thanks a lot.